This is a HeadGum Podcast. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show again. You know, a couple weeks back, we had a neuroscientist named Dr. Robert Sapolsky on, and he made a case grounded in neuroscience that there is no such thing as free will. He argued that the sense you have that you're making a decision, that you decide what to eat, what clothes to put on, and who to make out with, that sense that you have all the time every day is an illusion. For Robert, the you that you imagine driving the car of your life is actually baby Maggie in the passenger seat next to you with a toy driving wheel. He argued that physics, neurobiology, and your own history conspire to make you powerless in your own life. And given this powerlessness, he went on to say that people do not have moral responsibility for their actions. Now, this is a take. It goes against all of our instincts, our intuitions about how our own minds work, but it is not coming from nowhere. Advances in neuroscience have given us an ever more refined sense of the mechanisms that actually underlie all of our actions. So if you wanna make the argument that we're just chemical machines, the last few decades of science have given you a lot of shiny parts to make that case with. Well, this week on the show, we're doing something a little bit different because this week we have an expert on to present an opposing take. This week's guest is also a neuroscientist, but he argues that physics and biology do not negate free will and that in fact, Evolution created free will in organisms both large and small. It is a fascinating argument. I know you're gonna love this episode, but before we get into it, I just wanna remind you that if you wanna support this show, you can do so on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash adamconover. Five bucks a month gets you every episode of the show ad-free. We have a community discord, a lot of other great perks as well. Hope to see you there. And now let's get to this week's guest. I am honored on the show today to have Dr. Kevin Mitchell. He's a professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College in Dublin, and his most recent book is called Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. It is absolutely fascinating. Please enjoy this interview with Dr. Kevin Mitchell. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. 
It's a thrill to have you. Uh, you're here for our second episode in the last couple of months about free will. We recently spoke with Robert Sapolsky, who's a neuroscientist who wrote a book about uh, why he does not believe any of us have free will. Um, I don't know how he decided to write the book, uh, but you that's a terrible joke. I, I hate it. Uh, why did I? Uh, I'm, we're starting in a bad place. I'm making bad decisions. Uh, yep. You, yep. you you wrote a book. Uh, that makes the argument that, in fact, I am responsible for those decisions, that we do have free will. Uh, so yeah. tell us tell us what the starting point of that book is and why is this a pressing issue for you? Yeah, great. So um, why is it a pressing issue? That's such a good question. So partly um, because it's the foundation of of our systems of, of moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. So and at pretty much everything that we do in our in our daily lives, you know, the, it feels like we're making decisions. It feels like we're in control of our actions to some degree, at least not, you know, not necessarily completely and more in some circumstances than others, but that feels like the basic phenomenology of our existence, right? We're thinking about what to do. We're deciding things. We're reasoning out We're we're, we're maybe even telling other people our reasons and so on. And yet, um, some scientists and some philosophers would say, well, that's all an illusion. So. Uh, it's all just uh, neural circuits whirring away, and we're just we're just robots playing out our pre-programming, um, leaving really nothing for you to do in that process. Or even you know, it could be reduced to the level of even physics. We're just bags of atoms and molecules, and the laws of physics are going to determine where those atoms and molecules go, which is just necessarily going to entail your next state, whatever that is. So, um, so there's some challenges to this idea of how it could be that we as whole selves could be in charge of what we do. And it's not, mm-hmm. um, it's not an easy thing to get around because those challenges have some weight to the, but what I wanted to do in the book was try to figure out, well, okay, how, how could it be that we can be in charge and actually how could any organism, not just human beings, but how could any animal or any kind of living organism be said to do anything. You know, if it's all just physics, it doesn't, there's no doings. There's just stuff happens. You know, an animal is just a place where stuff happens. And um, that didn't seem to sit, that didn't sit right with me. Yeah. And so what I wanted to do is try and figure out, is there a way that we can naturalize the idea of, of free will and agency that doesn't involve any sort of supernatural spirit or any ghost in the machine but where the, 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 the organism itself could be in charge of things. That's what I was setting out to do. I find that really fascinating. And I feel like you've identified exactly the same problem that I have with this issue, which it's very similar to uh, the mind-body problem in philosophy of, of how can the, uh, uh, I talked about this a lot in our previous episode, how can our experience of consciousness be made commensurate with our understanding of physical reality. I'm a materialist. Yeah. I believe that the only yep. things that exist are physical things. Uh, right. Stuff is the only stuff that exists. I don't believe that there's uh, some special mental realm that my mind exists in, that some other dimension of consciousness that then somehow interacts with the material world because this just doesn't match anything we know of science. It seems very complex. It requires a lot of weird postulations. But then you have the experience of being conscious uh, and and it feels like a different thing than physical things do. For yeah. The problem of free will seems very similar where, hold on a second, I, I believe that physical laws are uh, are what govern the universe mm-hmm. or at least are under, you know, that's how we understand them. Um, but also I have the experience of free will. And 
I don't think I can simply deny or or toss out that experience very easily. And so how can we how can we put these two things in the same box? It's uh, and and understand them both simultaneously when they seem to contradict each other. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's it exactly. And I think that's the intuition that's really difficult for a lot for 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 a lot of people to wrap their head around, right? Which is uh, because we're all uh, as scientists trained to be materialists. Uh, and as you said, there's just stuff. There's no supernatural stuff, right? So how can it be that uh, something like a thought can push material stuff around in my brain? It seems to be um, just a ridiculous sort of unscientific thing to even think, right? Yeah. And, and so what I wanted to do was set out and see, well, what would that mean, right? What would it entail for a thought to push uh, atoms around and make neurons fire in my brain. And actually, mm. you know, ultimately, I think that you can come to a, an understanding that what a thought is, and we're, geez, we're already deep into this. Here. <laughs> what a thought, this, this is the only way to get into this topic is, is dive right. right into it. Good. Good. So what a thought, a thought is not immaterial. A thought is a pattern of neurons firing in your brain, but it's, it's a pattern that means something. It means something to the organism. And so it's, it, it can have causal power in what happens in your brain and, and, and the, your brain is a control system for your behavior because when some neurons are active, other neurons will be active and so on, right? So, but it's the meaning part that's really key there. So the question then is, okay, well then how does a thought, how does a pattern of neural activity come to have meaning for an animal or for a human being? And that is um, a really deep question. And actually, to try and tackle it, what I did in the book was start with the origin of life itself. Because oh. if we want to understand meaning, we really have to understand things like purpose, right? Because uh, and if something has meaning and value, it has to have value relative to something, relative to some goal. And for living things, the goal is simple. Persist, right? Mm -hmm. Just keep living. And, and even, reproducing and it's... and. Sure. But yeah. even, yeah, even before reproducing though, just yes. survive, right? Yes. So just persist, just, uh, uh, you know, just be a thing that keeps itself in the same sort of pattern through time. And that's a, basically a, a reasonable definition of life mm -hmm. is that it's, it's some pattern of processes and stuff, but really it's the, it's the processes that are important that all reinforce each other, uh, that make up a whole kind of a set of, of, of interlocked processes that keep going through time, even though the second law of thermodynamics says it right. shouldn't, right? Yeah, it says that disorder or that order should just dissipate. And yeah. It's anti-entropic that everything else is, is winding down and falling apart. And life is the one thing that goes in the opposite direction. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And so to do that, uh, living things, first of all, they have to have some kind of a boundary, right? They have to separate themselves from the rest of the world. And they usually do that with a cell membrane or a mm -hmm. cell wall. Um, you know, in us, it's ultimately the skin in a multicellular organism. But, and then they have to do work, right? They need to take in energy, free energy, in order to keep this, to, to keep resisting the second law of thermodynamics that says things should fall apart. Mm -hmm. So once you have that, once you have systems like that, then uh, systems that do that well, that have a certain configuration that reinforces everything in a robust way will tend to persist. And systems that are a little more precarious will fall apart. So you get this immediate selection, even before you have reproduction, for 
organization that uh, that that functionally keeps living things alive. Right? Mm. So we've already got a few uh, of the key ingredients we need there. We've got purpose, which is just this circular thing of staying alive. We've got a kind of an organization that could be one way or another. And we've got functionality in the organization. So it's designed, in this case, it's evolved uh, with systems that are good for keeping those processes going when something changes, right? It's easy to, it's easy to persist if the universe is, uh, is uh, cooperating, but it, it rarely does. So things are changing out in the world and our living organisms have to adapt to that. So what they need is some control system. They need to sense things out in the world. They need to react to them in the appropriate way. So if something mm. goes out of balance, they bring themselves back into balance. So, so now what you get is something else because now it's useful for an organism to have some information about what's out in the world. Um, and we've gone, we've, I mean, it's really important. We've gone way beyond physics now. We've gone way beyond yeah. uh, the physics of non-living things because they don't depend on information. Nothing means anything to them. They have no value yeah. or, or, or purpose. Um, and they're not trying to do anything, but living things are. So that's the kind of the basics. And then once you, once you get that, uh, once we, you ground those concepts. I, I, I want to I stick on that point really quickly yeah. because I think you made a really, that's a really great point because so often when we're having this conversation about free will, we're saying, well, f- uh, the, you know, the laws of physics just operate on you and cause what to happen, you know, what uh, cause what you did to inevitably happen, yeah. but that you're, it is a bit of the, the, the wrong level of explanation to say, like the laws of physics do exist, but we're sure. talking about a much more complex system. We're talking about the behavior of a living organism, which has other rules and laws and principles layered on top of the laws of physics. It's a little bit like saying, oh, like your computer, you know how Google works? It's just electricity. Yeah. Well, yes, no. it's electricity. But you can't just explain it via electricity. You need to understand the principles of computer programming and yeah. databases and information science. Those are real forms of science that are on top of the system of just like electrons moving around, you know, silicone wafers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, absolutely. So- I mean, you said that you said it really well. And it's funny because I hear some sometimes people say things like, well, you know, what do you think? Electrons work differently when they're in your in your brain or atoms, you know, the laws of physics are changed or something like, you know, their basic properties are changed. No, of course they're not changed. Like the, mm. the, the basic properties of electrons are not changed when they're in my computer, but the behavior of the electrons has changed, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's changed. Of course, the behavior of electrons is different in my computer than it is, you know, any, in, in other places because right. the computer is organized in a certain way. And that organization imposes some higher level constraints. Yeah. And actually that idea, like living beings just are sets of constraints. They're Mm. just constraining all their bits from really becoming one with the universe. Right. That's the bad, that's the end state that we want to avoid. This is a very Uh, galaxy brain thought. I, 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 I'm understanding what you mean that like, yeah, it's just forcing, forcing all the molecules inside you to like do, to, to just uh, uh, well, do to a constrained keep, set of behaviors rather than just like dissipate and yeah. decompose, which is what they right. want to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Right. So being you involves 
doing work to keep being you and keep all those bits organized. Right? <laughs> all of every part of me just wants to turn into dirt at all Absolutely. times. And this I'm just correct. trying yeah. to desperately hold them all inside this meat bag. Right. For as long as, <laughs> for as, long as we can, we, we want to stave off the inevitable. That's the, uh, that's the fantastic comedy of lies. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's oh, so, so that continues, right? I mean, so you can think about, um, this idea that a bacterium has some control systems to keep, to sense things in the world and to, uh, and to keep itself alive by reacting to them appropriately. So for example, a lot of bacteria move around, right? So if it was just sitting there, it has to take in energy. It does that by getting food, right? So it takes in sugars and stuff and it, 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 um, uses them to, to fuel its own metabolism, but, uh, inevitably it could run out of food because it eats it all, right? Or it's frenzied it all. Um, so it might have to move somewhere else. Well, where should it go? So this is where a bacterium gets some information about things in the world. So it has little proteins that sit on the surface that can detect a, a, like a molecule of sugar or something like that out in the world. And then that conveys a little signal into the inside of the bacterium, which um, influences where the bacterium moves, right? Yeah. And so what evolution uh, sort of um, instills in the design of the bacterium is that it tends to move towards food and it tends to move away from threats, you know, bad yeah. things, bad chemicals and so on. So now you've got some behavior that's controlled, uh, that's adaptive, right? So it's appropriate behavior based on the circumstances that helps the thing stay alive. And that whole kind of organization is, is what's doing the work. Right, it's using its machinery, it's using its parts to do it, but the parts are not in control. The whole system is in control, mm. especially especially because there's loads of stuff in the environment that it has to respond to. Right, it has to integrate loads and loads of information at once. It's not just responding to one little thing at a time. Nature is not so accommodating. So um, yeah, so the whole system is you know an organism is a proactive information-seeking, sense-making kind of thing that is uh, controlling, it, controlling itself and acting as a cause on the world, right? It's not, it's, it's insulated from the environment, but it can act on the environment. And is this your view of what free will is? This sounds to me like you're approaching a definition. Well, I think it's the, what I would call that is a kind of, is agency, Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe, a you know, the most basic kind of agency we can think of. And what, what we see when we look across evolution is that that kind of agency, I think it's fair to say it gets deeper. It gets sort of more powerful. The organism gets more insulated from things that are happening outside it. Mm. And what we see in multicellular animals is of course, they develop control systems as well that involve uh, neurons, right? So the nervous system is basically a control system to help the animal decide what it should do to coordinate all its, all its, uh, bits using muscles. Um, and, and of course to sense things out in the world. And so many organisms, for example, will sense like little worms, um, will sense things by smell or by touch. So they can respond to, um, you know, lots of cues in the environment, but th that are just right around them. And then they can go through some, some layers of processing to integrate those signals. So the worm can make a kind of, again, a holistic decision about what to do and then execute one of a repertoire of actions. Now, in a worm, that repertoire of actions is really simple. 
It's like wriggle forwards, <laughs> yeah. wriggle backwards, uh, eat something, look for a mate, wag my head around, yeah, turn, shit, a, turn shit, around, shit, right? make fertilizer. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Make yeah. babies, whatever. Okay. So it's not, it's not very complicated, but the same, the same ideas at play in us, it just gets much, much more complicated. I right? definitely I, mostly wriggle, eat shit. Yeah. Eat shit, <laughs> man. Uh, look, we, we, we came from worms and we're still wormy in, in, in some way, right? Um, and I mean, that's like, that's a joke, but actually it's a super good point that you make there because we do have all the same basic biological imperatives, right? You know, we yeah. do have to take in food. We do have to get rid of waste. We do have to drink. We have to sleep. We have to, uh, you know, we, we have to seek shelter and all these kinds of things. So, so we do have basic biological drives, but on top of that, we have scaffolded all these other kinds of goals and, mm-hmm. uh, that are, that are much more um, related to the things that we're doing in a, you know, a closer, more immediate kind of way. So, so yeah, over evolution, that, that system got more and more complicated and the distance between the sensors and the motors got more and more, right? So, and, mm. and what I mean by that is that there's more and more intervening levels of neural processing going on, right? Right. It's not just there's like there's some up here. There's not just some little stimulus on an outside cell membrane that causes the bacteria to move forward or away. I receive a stimulus and I go, oh, that's an interesting stimulus, but also I'm kind of hungry and I need to call my mom and I'm a little bit sleepy. So maybe I'll just lie here for a little while longer and then I'll think about getting up and make some coffee. Like it's much, there's much more of a complex uh, set of, set of stimuli and, and processes going on here. Absolutely. So, so, and I would say actually, even in the bacterium, it's not such a simple stimulus response kind of a thing. There's still some complicated stuff in the middle. It just gets vastly more complicated when you get to creatures with nervous systems, especially with big brains and lots of these intervening levels. So what, what happens is, you know, you could say in a simple system that when a sensor gets activated, it sends a signal and the signal does something in the system. But when you get a little bit more complicated, they're not really signals. Instead, they're, they're what we call representations. So they're information that is just kind of held there and presented to the rest of the nervous system. And, and it's decoupled from immediate action. So you can think about it, right? So for example, you might have, your, your visual system might process a load of information and uh, parse the kind of visual scene that you're looking at. And your visual scene right now includes my face, right? So there's a part of your brain that's active that uh, is representing the information that there's a face out in the world and it, that it looks like this, right? Yep. And so... That's information that, as you said, you can think about, right? You can, you don't have to act on that immediately. That's part of the cognition that, that, that's going on, right? I'm just sitting here and listening and processing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so there's lots of options open to you. You're thinking about, you know, the conversation, you're thinking whatever other things are, are, are going on and you're prioritizing certain goals. You're carrying out, um, an activity that actually isn't even just choosing an action, from one moment to the next, because we're having a conversation and that, that conversation is going to last like an hour. Right. So that's a thing that we're doing. Yeah. And that, that choice to have a conversation is now informing what we, what we're going to do for the next 60 minutes. So the control of behavior just gets much, much more sophisticated. Um, organisms like us, of course, can plan over a much, much longer time horizon. So actually I, I skipped over a little bit that's important in that evolutionary story. So worms, worms can sense things right next to them, right? They yeah. either have to touch them 
or they smell them, which means they're effectively literally touching the molecule that they're smelling. Yeah. So because of that, they, they inhabit the here and now. They're not, they're not thinking about anything beyond that, right? They don't right. plan for anything in the future because they have no time horizon. They're just, they're just, it's very, all, it's all quite immediate. But when, uh, when vision, when vision evolved and hearing as well, now we have a different kind of a, of a sense because those are distant senses. We can see things off in the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and first of all, we have to do some work, right? We're not directly detecting the things that, that we're interested in because we're not interested in photons hitting our retina. We're interested in what they were bouncing off of in the yeah. world, right? We're interested in objects in the world. That's the information we need to make adaptive behavioral choices. So, so first of all, we need these extra levels of, of processing that allow us to, to, to parse the objects in the, in the scene. Yes. I, I, I think it's so brilliant that you say we're not interested in photons. We're interested in what they represent. And you're, this, the amount of processing that that necessitates is enormous that, yeah, yeah. we're not literally, there are some things we're like, oh my God, photons. Ah, yeah. I have a hangover. Like, I don't oh, yeah, want yeah. all these photons. I got to yeah. close the, I got to close the blinds. Sure. But most of the time we're combining those photons in, using our very complex brains into an image. And we're saying, ah, I'm looking at Kevin exactly. right now. Exactly. Um, th- right. These photons add up to something. Let yeah. me respond to, here are some photons that are a threat, or here are some photons yep. that are a friend, or exactly. that make me horny. Oh, these are some yep. very horny photons. Horny photons, uh, <laughs> that's it, that's it. Horny photon patterns, let's say, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. again, it's, a, it's another level of complexity and, and like system on top of just the base physical reality. Yeah. Yeah, and what you get there is is first of all be, because we can see things off in the distance, we can plan about things in the distance, mm-hmm. right? So we can have goals that involve me, you know, walking some distance away to get to something, right? And we can uh, also rep- represent those things to ourselves in our minds, you know, well, like I can, other, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so now we're into the realm of real cognition, right? Yeah. I mean, where um, and it's interesting to think, well, what's what is your cognition about? What are the elements that you're actually thinking about? And like that, you're not thinking about photons. You're not thinking about um, vibrations in the air. You're thinking about sounds. You're thinking about language. You're thinking about objects in the world. Um, and, and what organisms can do with these amazing nervous systems is build up this model of the world, what's out there right now. But they don't just do it in a naive way. They learn from experience, right? Yeah. So you know that I'm a human being because you've seen human beings before, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so every time that we're sort of perceiving the world, that's, just, that's not a passive uh, process. That's a super active process of making sense of the world by recognizing objects and then by linking them to the stored knowledge that we have about the properties of human beings, the properties of, of whiteboards and computers and everything else that's in our environments right now, right? So we, we build up this very, very sophisticated inner cognitive world, a world of ideas about things, in the, about objects, about, uh, about what we can do with them, about uh, what they might do to us. You know, those are threats and opportunities and so on. Um, and that's the, that's the stuff that we need to think about. And by, by thinking about it, we ultimately can, just like our little worm, control this repertoire of actions that we could yeah. that we could do right so this is where the the it really starts to get into free will it's like what controls what you do in the moment yeah and there's a couple of ways that you can think about this 
One is the way I just described, right? There's this all, you're, you're really thinking about stuff. It's really you thinking about things that matter at the level of the organism, right? Yeah. At, at your level. Um, so, and you've got, and you've got reasons for doing things, right? You know about things that have happened in the world in the past. You, you were in some scenario, you did an action, it turned out really well, and therefore you're going to do that again or be more likely to do that next time, right? Or it turned out really badly, so you're definitely not going to do that next time. So we learn about the properties of things in the world. We learn about sequences of events. We learn about cause and effect, causal relations, the consequences of our own actions. And all of that is used uh, to guide our decision-making. Now, I would say when we're doing that, that is just you making a decision. Like, what else would you want for it to be you making a decision? Yeah. Uh, but there are other ways to think about it. And I know, uh, for example, that you had Robert Sapolsky on recently. Yeah. And, and what Robert would say is, I think he'd probably agree with all of that up to the point where I say it's you doing it. And he would say, no, it's just all the circuits that they're configured that way. Yeah. You, you didn't choose any of those things. And it's all just predetermined. And whatever scenario you're in, sure, all that cognition is going to happen. But there's only one possible outcome every time in every situation that you're in right only one possible outcome could happen can, can i pause for one second because i sort mm -hmm. of want to pull apart some parts of the argument here yeah um because one of the big problems when we talk about free will and one of the big problems with literally every philosophical conversation which this is is defining terms and defining what sure. the problem is yeah. and most of the time people are talking past each other yes so i i love the explanation you've given of everything so far if someone were to say to you hey i don't think humans have free will right i don't think we choose to do anything you've just described the way in which as a matter of physical reality humans are choosing systems. That is literally all we fucking are. We're, we're extremely <laughs> yes. complex systems yeah. that respond to stimuli in very complex ways by mm -hmm. evaluate. Okay. We have many stimuli. We're processing it. We're turning it into an image. Where is that a friend? Okay, let me compare that to my memories. Let me, uh, check my list of wants and needs and desires. What's the best thing to do in this moment? I'll do this. Right. And so if you were a scientist, you know, from another planet, come to Earth, you'd look at humans and go, ah, these are choosing systems. You know, right. um, these are extremely complex. Uh, I was about to say AIs. That's very stupid. <laughs> we're, we're NIs. We're NIs. We're natural intelligences. Yeah. Um, and, and so that answers one version of the question, is there free will? Mm -hmm. um, because you're saying this is literally part of the physical reality of humans is to make these choices. But then the sort of questions that Robert asks are come from a different, he's asking a different question. Uh -huh. he's, he's, uh, he comes at it a little bit more from, uh, you know, a presumption in that we have in our legal system, for instance, yeah. which is that uh, if somebody, uh, you have free will, if you could do one thing or do another, and you had the capacity to choose otherwise, two mm -hmm. roads diverged in a yellow wood, and you had an equal chance of taking either one of them, it was entirely up to you. And Robert makes an argument that so far, I don't think anything you've said responded to, um, yeah. which is that, hey, uh, well, no matter how complex the system is, we live in a deterministic universe. And so much of that system is uh, uh, conditioned by everything that's happened to you past in your life. And right. so therefore, you could not have chosen otherwise. At, you are a choosing system, perhaps. But 
the system would always make the same choice given the same stimuli. Yeah. Um, and therefore there was never a choice for you to make in the first place. You're just a train running along a track and the lever is flipped one way or the other, and you're going to go down track A or track B. And the guy in the, you know, driving the engine doesn't have any choice um, yeah. either way. Um, and so do, do you, do you agree with my framing? And, and if do, so, yeah, how no, do you, you respond you got to that? that? You've got that perfectly. Yeah. So, so what I would say is, first of all, I completely agree with Robert that the sense of free will uh, that some people have, which is this absolutist kind of sense, which is that you can do, you're just absolute, excuse me, that you're just absolutely free uh, to do anything in any circumstance, uh, completely unaffected by anything that has ever happened before, is just ludicrous. That's not a thing that, that any organism would want to have, right? It would just be mean you're not using any information you're, you know, you're not taking anything from evolution um, or from the way that you developed or there were experiences that you've had. You're like, none of that matters. None of that is allowed to influence your decision. It just has to be what? Like just random. That's just a random behavior generator, right? So, so that absolute, almost kind of magical version of free will is just uh, off the table right from the get-go, I think. And I think uh, Robert probably agrees with that. Um, however, all of these influences don't have to add up to complete determination, right? And mm. that's, that, that's the question. So everything that I described there about, you know, having these basic sort of biological imperatives, about building up a map of the world from your own experience, about having these kinds of um, circuits that will weigh up various alternatives. Um, you know, it, it's absolutely true, for example, that some people are more sensitive to threats than other people. Right, they've got a little dial, uh, you know, metaphorically that's just tuned a little bit up to eleven, maybe um, that makes them just really, really sensitive to threats, and that's kind of part of their personality, and that affects their behavior. So, can they choose to change that? Probably not. No, that that so they may not have that kind of complete freedom. However, that doesn't mean that in every single moment those kinds of simple tunings will direct your behavior so that there's only one possible outcome. And there's a few reasons why, why I would say that. First of all, um, it's not the right kind of information, right? That those little tunings are so general that there's no, there's no context, there's no nuance. Um, that's not what organisms need to get around in a complicated world, right? We really do need to know about stuff and the particularities of the situation and weigh all, all the various things, right? We're not just reacting to one little thing in, in isolation. Yeah. And secondly, all of those cognitive processes are so complicated. They're so computationally um, uh, complex that actually it's impossible for them to have a single outcome every time, right? It's mm. just, the, well, it's not impossible. The only way it could be is if actually the physics of the universe were completely deterministic. Mm. So if, if the argument actually boils down to it's all physics at the bottom and yeah. that's just deterministic, then, then we're on a different kind of territory and, and, and we can have that conversation too. Um, if it is that your psychology, the set of reasons that you have right now just necessarily says, here's one outcome that's the right thing to do in every scenario. Well, that's just wrong. I think it, it things are just too complicated for that to be the case. And we know that the machinery that we're using to perform these operations is noisy, right? So neurons are really noisy, wet, jiggly places. You've mm. got proteins moving around, bouncing off each other. There's all kinds of, of jitteriness 
that uh, that you know the organism actually has to tame that. It has to try to make its its circuits work as robustly as possible. But it also uses it. That that variability is part of what allows organisms to explore and adapt and not just be simple passive stimulus response machines. Ah, so the, I love uh, this. Yeah. So the the variability is. First of all, it's inescapable. It's just physically not the case that if you ran these computations um, over a finite time, that you would always get the same outcome. Mm-hmm. We've got all kinds of nonlinear feedback, kind of chaotic like systems where, um, you know, the computations just won't produce the same outcome every time. It's kind of like trying to predict the weather, right? So we can predict the weather pretty well for the next minute. Really well, right? <laughs> Pretty well for an hour from now. Uh, you know, quite well. Pretty well, well for a day, uh, a day from now, and then after that, it thinks that the well, prediction. Well, look, I, I, I've directions, right? I've covered myself how much better weather prediction has gotten over the past, you know, twenty years, and how you know they can now predict, you know, ten or thirty days out much better than they could before. But you're right. right. I so I, I just I I push back slightly against yeah. weather prediction as this unpredictable thing because my God, we've gotten massively better at it, but it is the paradigm of a chaotic system sure. that, you know, even if you know all of the inputs, you may not be able to uh, exactly predict the outputs because yeah. they interact with each other so chaotically. Exactly. And, yeah. and by the way, the same thing is true of the technology that people are calling artificial intelligence that people are playing with. Now, one of the problems of these systems is uh, for putting them to any practical use, like large language models and the like, mm-hmm. is that it is uh, they're inherently unpredictable that, uh, that you know, it, there's always a chance that some output is going to come out that you did not expect um, yeah. because it's sort of a thing that is so complex. You set it up and you don't really understand why it does what it does. You're like, OK, yeah. here's what came out the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very simple, you know, human created, uh, you know, analog of something that might be similar to a human mind. It's not nearly as complex yeah. as a human mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and also they. They use variability in those things. That's how they come right. up with something different every time, right? And right. so, and we and we use that variability uh, as well. But I mean, more fundamentally, though, you put your finger on it earlier when you said in the weather systems that we have finite information there. Mm. Well, we have finite information when we're trying to figure stuff out, and it's incomplete information and it's ambiguous. You know, when we're even just doing perception, we're seeing things, we're inferring that there's objects out in the world, but sometimes we're wrong. You know, sometimes we make mistakes. Um, and so the, the information that we have about the state of the world, uh, the knowledge that we have about the relations between things, the predictions that we're making about what would happen if I did such and such, those are very uncertain, right? All of them have some level of uncertainty, some finiteness to the information. And then the computations that have to happen also have to happen fast, right? We don't have the luxury to just sit around and wait for these computations to, to run. Uh, you know, we have to do something. So. Um, so I just think as a matter of fact, it's just not true that those computations will always produce the same outcome every time because the brain is operating with, um, incomplete, ambiguous information and having to just do the best it can. And the other thing is like, it's optimizing over so many variables at once, right? So you might be hungry, uh, you might be afraid, you might be looking for shelter, also a little horny. Uh, you might be, you know, you know you might be thirsty, whatever you might, uh, you might want to do this. There's, there's all kinds of things that we're doing. We've got long-term goals. We've got uh, short-term goals that are sort of nested within them. 
again, you know, in economics, you can look at this, this theory of, of bounded rationality where we, we make decisions based on the information that we have, but there's not a one right answer necessarily. You know, there may be yeah. multiple options that are equally good and we have to muddle along a lot of the time. So like I said, I think the only way that you could get that kind of psychological or neural determinism is if it rested on pure physical determinism. That yeah. is, if in the entire universe, there's only one timeline possible just based on the low-level laws of physics. And that just doesn't hold either. So <laughs> the, the physics just doesn't say that, right? So, mm. so the idea... The idea that physics says you can take the state of a system and define it with precision um, and then apply the laws of physics to it. So it's just a set of atoms or subatomic particles or quantum right. fields, whatever level you want to talk about. Um, and you apply the right equations and then the equations have a single outcome, right? They single output at the next time spot and the next and the next and the next for all eternity. Yeah. For, forwards and backwards, right? So that's a view of, of the universe that um, has put, been put forward by some physicists, but there isn't really any good evidence to support it. Really? It, not at all. So it's a sort of an idealization or a set of a, that, that rests on a set of assumptions. Yeah. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Now you're blowing my mind. The, because oh. this, is, this is like... So often when we're having this conversation, I feel like we sort of revert to, without meaning to, very facile, like, you know, middle school level philosophical questions. And mm -hmm. so I do it myself and I've done it in, uh, we're talking about determinism. Hey, if you, if you started the universe at a particular point and you knew the position of every molecule and every atom, couldn't yeah. you therefore know exactly what was going to happen? 
And you're right. This is simply an assumption of mine. Sure. Um, uh, I don't know enough about physics to know if it's the case. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's, so, so, so we can go down. So, I mean, it used to be, for example, so N Newton, uh, you know, came up with his laws of, of motion, famously used them to predict things like the orbits of the planets. And we can do that really, really well, like hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. Right. We can predict solar eclipses and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Now, that has given, I think, the impression that, phys that classical physics is classical mechanics is completely deterministic because we were so good at it. Right. Yeah. Um, however, that kind of a system is like the absolute optimal system that you would want to, to make those kinds of predictions. Because it's these things floating around in space, they're really, really isolated from each other. It's yeah. just simple, simple systems of, you know, two components and so on. Even when you start adding in three, right, you make it a three-body problem, it already right. starts to get really, really complex. Yeah, when you have uh, three gravitational wells or whatever yeah. orbiting each other, there's uh, it, it becomes almost impossible to predict. Uh, exactly. Like the, the forces become so complex. Exactly. And all of Newtonian physics is, is itself, you're right, this this is where like our conception, or at least my conception of physics comes from. It's the first physics you learn in high school. Uh -huh. You learn like, uh -huh. oh, you get the equations, you roll the ball, you can predict the amount of force that comes out. You know, you literally, I remember doing little experiments in high school where you, you're you experimenting with determinism. It's like, do the yeah. math and then it'll come out the other end, you know, that yeah. and this does, is how far great. the thing rolls. Yeah, right? it's how yeah. cool. But yeah. that itself is a higher order, you know, uh, uh, sort of level of understanding the, the universe, because we know that underneath that is quantum physics Absolutely. and all these other things, yeah. which are the underlying system. Um, but we're sort of using our higher level understanding of physics, uh, as uh, we're, we're applying that same notion of determinism to the rest of it. Like it's, yeah. it's a very, the way that we understood physics in 1700, uh, you know, the, the 1700s, those uh, assumptions uh, don't necessarily hold. Yeah, exactly. And so for, a, for, for things like the orbits of the planets, it's a very simple linear system, right? But most other things right. in the world are nonlinear. They've got lots of components that have some kind of feedback interactions with each other that yeah. mean that, there's, that actually they'll show chaotic dynamics. So if there's a little change at one point, then the system might go off this way or it might go off that way, right? And what that means is that the future is, is, is unpredictable. Now, the question is whether it's actually determined in principle, it's just that we can't know it. And that's the way that some people interpret it. However, uh, if you go down to the quantum level or even at the classical level, then it, the idea that it's deterministic, like I said, is an assumption. In quantum physics, we know that it's not, right? So mm. we know that, um, that if you... Think about the equations that govern the evolution of some quantum system that has a bunch of particles in it. Um, the famous one is called the Schrodinger equation, right? And right. the Schrodinger equation is going to tell you how this thing called the wave function is going to evolve through time. And it does it very, very deterministically, right? It gives you very precise kind of values uh, for the wave function over time. However, when you want to actually look at the thing, that wave function collapses because what the wave function is, is a set of probabilities of things that might happen if the atoms in the system interact with something. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, it's nothing special about observation by a human. It's just any kind of interaction will, you know, collapse that, that superposition and one of the outcomes occurs. But as far as we know, and the, I mean, this is very contentious, what this really means 
But as far as we can know, the one that happens is is just random, right? It's a random playing out of those probabilities. There's nothing right. else. There's no other cause there that, that we don't know about. It just is underdetermined, but something has to happen because yep. time is marching on and interactions are happening. And that something will just be one of those things with a certain probability. Yeah. So, so what that means is that the future is not set, right? This idea of this single timeline is just not right. The future gets fuzzy and it gets fuzzier the farther you go in the future, which is why the weather forecast thing kind of comes into yep. play because, uh, yeah, maybe we're out to 20 days. Well, uh, probably depends, <laughs> probably depends where you live. I can tell you that's not true in Ireland, <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, but beyond that, the, the degree of uncertainty, the fuzziness of the estimates just increases the further you go into the future. And yeah. so I think the future just is like, is like that. Um, and what that means is you've got this sort of underdetermination by the low-level laws of physics. By themselves, yep. they don't say exactly what the next state of the system is. And that's crucial because what that means is the way a system is organized can have some causal power over what happens. And if it was true that all of the causation was exhausted down at this low level, right? There was no room for, there's no slack in that system. If, if everything's determined, just, just one thing is going to happen. But if multiple things could happen, then something else can have an effect. And that something else is the way the system is organized. That's so fascinating. To me, it looks like there's there's multiple levels of, I don't know if I want to use the word indeterminacy, but unpredictability, mm -hmm. yeah. where you've got the quantum level, as you described, but then you also have, look, you've used the laws of physics to build an incredibly complex system, whether you're talking about weather, whether you're talking about human cognition, whether you're talking about, I don't know, the way that um, a large language model is on a server that is powered by electricity, that is programmed by people. You have all these other layers of organization that are in truth different from uh, you know, simply simply determined physical laws absolutely um, that that do have causal power both on yeah. the very level of high organization and on the very uh, low level. That's um, it. And we come back um, to to where you started when you were saying you know that that now each of these levels is kind of concerned with different things. It's got its own operating principles that right. are that are that it's operating under, and the details down here don't matter that much, right? And so that's where, you know, we talked about thoughts being meaningful patterns of neural activity and exactly the same thing applies, right? When you're thinking about things, there's a certain level that the system is causally sensitive to. So if the pattern means dog, that's one thing. And if the pattern means bird, that's something else, right? But the details of the pattern aren't that, aren't that important, right? It's going to be instantiated in some kind of firing of neural activity, but it's, it's a little arbitrary. It's variable, exactly the details, right? So the system is running on meaningful patterns. The neural firings and the physical stuff is just the, that's just the medium. That's just the substrate. But the details down there are not so, are not so relevant. Right. Yeah. So uh, can, I, can I say one other thing too about the, the determinism thing? Because, um, you know, this, it's possible for people to say, okay, yeah, there's, there's indeterminacy at the quantum level, but it, it, you know, it evaporates or it kind of averages out when you get up to classical levels. And I just want to say that even at classical levels, the idea of determinism just rests on a whole load of assumptions. And one mm. of those is that you can define the state of a system right now with infinite precision. Okay. That is, you, you could say everything about me, say, 
So yeah. you could des- you could describe the position of every atom, the momentum of every atom with complete mathematical precision. So with a number that just keeps going on yep. and on and on, right? Right. Yep. So we keep on adding decimal places to the decimal points. Now, if you have that, then and you submit that uh, to uh, you know Newton's laws or Maxwell's laws or whatever it is, and you let that system run out, even if it's kind of got some chaotic nonlinearities to it, it would still be deterministic, right? You'd get one sort of set of things that would follow for all time. Yep, However, that's the, premise. that's the premise. However, it's not possible to define a system with infinite precision. Right. It's the God's or, or eye view reasons. is what it's sometimes called yeah. in, in philosophy. Yeah. And like that sort of underlines the fact that only God could possibly have that view. How would one do this? Yeah. yeah. And I would say not even, right? Not ah. even God. Let's say not even the universe knows these, these numbers with infinite precision. So there's a, there's a theory which would, or a, an argument here, which says that um, in order for this idea to be true, for these numbers to be given with infinite precision, um, that, that the, in, the amount of information in the universe at any time would have to be infinite, right? And we know that information is not some immaterial floaty thing. It has to be instantiated in physical stuff. The arrangement of physical stuff is what information is. Yeah. And so the amount of information that can be included in any finite space is itself finite. So it couldn't be the case that, you know, when the Big Bang happened, the, the information about how all the particles would evolve <sighs> through all of time was already there. Oh, wow. I know it's a head fucker. As I, no, me. Head I, record, I'm, head record. I, you're, I, I'm sorry. You're a, you're a neuroscientist, right? Yes. This is an extremely powerful <laughs> like physics philosophy argument you've just made that yeah. uh, I'm I you you've blown my mind with. You're okay because yeah, the premise is from the point of the big bang that that moment would contain all of the information that, you know, you could if you if you knew the starting position of everything at the at the beginning of the big bang, you could predict what's happening in this moment and this moment and this moment if you had that perfect god's eye view. Yeah. Um for well, that to be true, the universe would have to have been infinitely large at that moment. And we know, right, that it isn't. It was small, it's teeny-weeny, uh, right. and, it, and it's expanding. So the amount of information, there's actually information being created as the universe expands because there's more ways for this stuff to be arranged. Right. And you're right? talking about information in, like, uh, the, 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 there's a sense in which physicists use that word that's a little mm-hmm. bit different from how we use that word. Um, but it is like uh, the, there's a physical sense in which that information couldn't have been contained in that moment yeah. because it would have. I'm following. I'm just not sure. I, I like have this urge sometimes to when I have an expert on, they say something, I understand it. And then I want to yeah. regurgitate it back to make sure the right. audience gets it, too, because I'm dumber than the expert. Can, can I and the audience me? might be. And I'm, I'm, yeah. my, I'm losing my ability right, to right. even repeat what you're saying, but I do understand it. Right. It is tricky. <laughs> right. Let me let me try and let me try and encapsulate it in, in a different way. Yes. So. When we're making predictions about the weather, um, those systems, as we, run the, as we run those simulations on day after day after day, they start very good, right? So there's very little deviation here. Um, but as they go further and further, they become more and more variable depending on the... So we, what we've done is we've truncated the numbers that we're adding. So when we're taking wind speed measurements and temperature measurements, all the, all the parameters that the, we feed into the model, those are numbers that are truncated after a certain point. Right. The wind speed is uh, 
it's 10 miles an hour or is it 10.5 miles an hour or is it 10.252 or is it 10.523? At some point, you're chopping it off. Yeah, exactly. Now, where you chop it off is going to manifest in a greater degree of uncertainty in the forecast further into the future, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a 10.523456, you'll get a little bit more precision further into the future, right? So those numbers, and if you had the numbers infinitely, your simulations would probably be uh, predictable, right? And deterministic. Uh, However, what I'm saying is that the universe doesn't know what those numbers are right now, right? Those are future numbers and things are just fuzzy in the future. And in fact, like this is going to get even deeper. I apologize. But like, if you think about the nature of time, what makes the present the present? (laughs) Well, one way to think about it is the present is the moment, the, the, the duration of time in which events happen when all this fuzzy indefiniteness becomes definite because things are interacting with each other they're ha- they're being forced to take on certain values and then time marches on then we're in the past which is fixed but the future is really open and it gets more open the further away you go so i mean all of this is a, a long-winded uh discussion about physics and sort of metaphysics all of which is to say uh at least it's the case that physics has not proven that uh, there's only one timeline okay yeah. um so that's the that's the weakest way to phrase the uh, the conclusion. There are stronger ways to say. In fact, I would say physicists yes. don't that, that it's quite the opposite, right? There may um, be yeah. there may be physicists or philosophers who disagree with you about some of these particulars, but at the very least, we can say they have not proven their case beyond the shadow of a doubt. You exactly. would still be having an argument here about yeah. uh, how deterministic the universe is, and so therefore, if we're talking about free will, we should not take it as established that the universe and the laws of physics are deterministic and that it's even sensical to say, oh, if you understood the position of every single molecule in the universe and every single electron, you could predict exactly what someone would do. Therefore, no free will would exist, which is the premise of a lot of these arguments. Well, we we can't even establish whether or not that hypothetical makes sense beyond the shadow of a doubt. So there's a huge assumption there. Absolutely. What a wonderful yeah. argument. This is, uh, you've, you've, I want to get Robert back on the show now because <laughs> I've got some more questions for him. No, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. he, he has, he, he's, he's a great thinker in his own right. And that's why I love having both of you on. Yeah. Um, but uh, I also want to ask though, the, that definition of free will that we're still talking about mm-hmm. um, is to me still kind of odd because the when someone in this version of the argument asks, is there free will? What they're asking is, given the state of the universe at this moment, could I have chosen to do otherwise? Or was uh-huh. my, you know, if I knew the position of every single molecule, blah, 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 right? Would that predict my behavior? Or right. do I have the power as a thinking entity to change the laws of physics with my mind, right? And to just yeah. like, with no cause whatsoever, with no pre-existing cause whatsoever, um, everything in my being and upbringing and physics and everything else is causing me to go left, but I'm going to wrench the wheel to the white, or r- the wheel to the right. Um, and that to me is a strange way to frame the problem or at least yeah. not, or f- frame the question, or at least one that is not obvious. Like why, right. why would that be the thing that we are talking about when we're talking about free will. There's a lot of other ways to to frame yeah. it, right? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, you've, you've sort of reiterated this absolutist 
view that you have to be free from every prior cause in order to be called free will, you know, for that to be called free will. And it's yeah. just a, it, you know, you could say it's the, it's too high a bar, but I think it's just the wrong bar, right? There's not, that's not a thing that a living organism could want and still be a self through time, right? I mean, the whole point, <laughs> the whole point of being alive, like we talked about earlier, is constraining your, your bits to keep being you yeah. through time, right? That's yeah. the, there isn't this instantaneous view misses the whole point of life. It's a continuous process that extends through time. So if we're not thinking about that, we're missing the whole, the whole point. I, and, I feel that there's some people who, when they're trying to solve these big philosophical questions about the relationship between the experience of consciousness and the body, right, demand a solution to the problem of dualism. How can there be mind stuff and there's right. also physical stuff and how do these things connect, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then when you try to solve the problem and say, actually, they're the same thing and you are but a physical organism who is experiencing mm -hmm. your experience is the experience of being a contained system that is subject to physical laws. Then they go, no, that's I, it's not good enough for me. Right. I want to be a separate brain stuff. And how does that yeah. in interact? I'm like, but you're not. That solves the right. problem if you're not. Yeah. And, well, and uh, no, I know. think you're right. You know, th there is that reaction. And and. um it's funny, again, you know, you can, you can think about in neuroscience how when we're describing these systems, right, these incredibly elaborate, beautiful, exquisite systems that we have for weighing up all these alternatives, for storing all this knowledge, for learning a causal model of the world and ourselves and using that to, to, to adaptively direct our behavior, you know, you can say, well, okay, yeah, you know, neuroscience is showing that's just these neurons firing. That's just your amygdala getting activated. That's just your prefrontal circuits doing this, right? It's just a, it's just a rephrasing of it so that what you're saying is all that cognition is just an illusion and really it's just neurons firing. And that's what I want to say is wrong because actually the details of the neurons firing are not so important. What's important is what they mean to you as an individual in you know, your real personal experience through your life and so on. Right. It's so sort of like it's sort of like saying um, this novel is just ink on paper. Well, exactly. yes, it's just ink on paper in some sense. Yeah. In another sense, a person in a different place wrote it down and published it and had thoughts and feelings that they're expressing to me via language. Yeah. It's also all those other things. You can't simply say, ah, oh, but it's just ink on paper. Well, yeah, it, it is and it is not. You are missing something if you say that. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org.
in fairness, one of the things that some people are, you know, concerned about free will will say is that, okay, you know, we've evolved, uh, like other organisms, we can do things for reasons and that, and that's good. Everything that I just described so far is us doing things for reasons, but they might say, but you can't, you can't com come up with those reasons, right? Though you can't come up with your intentions, those just happen. And then you, and then you act on them. Sure you do, but, um, but you can't decide what you want to do. You can do what you want. You can't decide what to do what you want. And um, I think that also that's wrong. I, I think we decide what to want to do all the time. Mm. So when we decided to have this conversation, for example, we then in the process of doing that or by virtue of doing that, decided to want to keep talking to each other, right? You know, that's a goal. We set a goal. It's, it's not an immediate thing. It's something that lasts for some time. So we have an objective. We have an activity. While we're doing that, that goal that we chose is informing and constraining our behavior, you know, suitably and appropriately as we're going through time. And so all of our behavior is, is like that. So this idea that we just have intentions that just sort of arise uh, and then we carry them out like this pre-programming kind of thing just doesn't fit with our real lived experience of coming to those ideas by reasoning, right? By that process of reasoning. And the other thing about it that humans have that other animals don't, or at least probably not to the same degree, is that we can think about those reasons, right? So we've got this extra level uh, where we can think about our own thoughts. We can express them to each other, of course, because, right. we have, because we have language, but we can, you know, for example, we might say, okay, yeah, I think I have a, a, I have a belief that such and such is the case, but I'm not that certain about it. Now I have a, a belief about the belief. Right? right, so that degree of certainty, what we call a metacognition, um, allows us to now have what were the just sort of the elements of cognition now be objects of cognition. Now we can think about our own thoughts, and that's hugely pro uh, powerful. And I think it kind of really, you know, we th this evolutionary trajectory was one of life freeing itself from the immediacies of the physical environment. Uh, and keeping itself going, and then animals getting more and more control as they go along. And I think that degree of metacognition gives us this sort of ultimate level of control over our own thoughts. Yes. To, to the point where we can decide, you know what? I can think about my future behavior. I can make a decision that's, you know, I can adopt a policy about a way I think I should behave. And in the future, that is going to inform what I do. But it's because I chose it, right? It's because I'm choosing it now that it informs it in the future. So yeah, future me may, may be pissed off that past me made a choice that committed future Kev to some certain actions, right? Um, but uh, again, the whole point of being a self is that those instantaneous time slices of you, that's not you yet. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're the, you're the thing extended through time. Yeah. That, you know, we're just the, the momentary avatar in the world of that self that is continuous through oh time. Oh my God. The, I'm sorry. You're just dropping like a, a mind explosions in Fact. every sentence. Dude. Yes. You're right, Kevin. That is the nature of self as it's extended through time. And at every moment I am, but a slice avatar of exactly. my long-term self Good. extended through time, which changes as I live and that myself changes yet. I, at every moment and that self, what an incredible paradox that you've just laid upon <laughs> us in, in half a sentence. Right. But, but I, 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 no, I was thinking about the medical cognition issue too, because mm -hmm. again, it's, 
Oh, the degree to which this question of do we have free will just seems more and more facile the more you you ask it because, well, how about all the times that I do something and I didn't choose to do it, right? Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. react quickly. Um, yeah. I, I have a reaction. And then afterwards I ask, why did I do that? Yes. Hold on a second. Why I'm not happy that I did that. Right. Why did I do that? And then I have to go think about what, oh, I was hungry. Oh, I was yeah. hungry. That's why I, I was just hungry. Right. Okay. And I was in a bad mood. That's why yeah. I snapped at that person. Yeah. Okay. You know what? I'll make sure I have a granola bar before the Monday morning meeting um, mm-hmm. so that I don't do that again. Right. right. Like that but, you know, is, that, that that is me experiencing a, lo- a lack of conscious control and then right. exercising conscious control over my behavior and using my conscious control to, I go, I have to go talk to my therapist and decide to talk to my therapist about this. There, yeah. There's so many layers of complexity right. that the question of, did I have free will at that moment do- doesn't even like begin to address, like it's too simple yeah. of a question and framework is what uh, I'm coming uh, to uh, here. Exactly. And I think that, um, the idea that that it's absolutely all or nothing, it, right. that's what you're coming to, right? That's an allude. That's a, just a, a wrong framing. And what you've done, right? That case that you just highlighted, why would you notice that, right? If it wasn't for the fact that it's different from all of the way you control your behavior a lot of the time, right? Mm-hmm. We know those situations where, shit, why did I do that? Why did I say that? I wish I hadn't done that. You know? um, and so, you know, we get a picture where we don't just have absolute free will that we exercise with complete freedom and, you know, divorced from everything in the world at, at all times, what we have is degrees of freedom. First of all, just physically, the future's open, so we don't have to go looking for where the freedom could come from. It's there already. Instead, what we have to do is, is explain, well, uh, given the future's open, how do we control it, right? How do we make the things happen that we want to happen in the, yeah. in, in the immediate time frame and then further and further into the future? That's what controlling behavior is. And so that gives a very different framing and it allows us, if, you know, it allows us to recognize that you have, could have more or less free will in some circumstances. And by free will there, I mean the ability for rational control over your, your behavior. And we, of course, we recognize that it's super important to realize, for example, that children have less rational control over their behavior than adults do, that People with mental illness have less control, that drug addicts have less control, right? Uh, that people who are hungry or, um, you know, who are in some, some desperate, you know, circumstances have less degrees of freedom than other people. And so if, you know, if you just deny free will altogether, then you're denying that there's anything to compare between those kinds of different scenarios. Mm. It just seems pointless uh, to me, yeah. but also not right. You know, a, a big part of Robert's argument is, is a moral one that like, when you look at our legal system, for instance, we, yeah. we, or just our systems of shame and guilt, the way we treat each other. Um, we treat each other as free actors in many cases when we are not right. Robert would argue in all cases, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, I certainly agree with that point that in vastly many cases, people are, the product of not just nature, not just nurture, but both, right? And they and they had no control over the situation, and that is a moral uh, that, that's that's a moral issue that we should be concerned with. But you raise a, a a very good point that if you say, well, there's no free will whatsoever, then you lose any basis by which to distinguish between 
uh, some people's behavior and other people's behavior. I'm not saying that some people should be punished for their behavior because free will must exist to some degree, but there is a difference between someone who is um, in the throes of a very serious addiction and yep. someone who is not. I can look at someone who, you know, I quit drinking a couple of years ago. Now, when I go to a concert and I see everybody missing the beginning of the concert because they're lining up for beers because yeah. they have to have a beer at that concert, right? I can look at those people and say, those people are being driven by addiction and they don't realize it. That's that's my reaction. And by the way, I'm not being judgmental. Some people enjoy that and it's fine for them, et cetera. But I can look at that because I see that that's how I used to behave. And I can draw that distinction. Right. Yeah. And if I if if we say, well, there's no free will whatsoever, I we lose the ability to draw that distinction. And that's yeah. a real distinction between people. Absolutely. I think it's really important. And um and it's it's kind of funny to me that Robert makes the argument that way, first of all, as if we don't already do that, right? So so the legal system, you know, absolutely already takes people's circumstances into account to some degree. Now, it may do it yeah. more in, in some jurisdictions than I others. would say it should do it more generally, but it does do it to some extent. You know, right. you can uh, not guilty by reason of insanity exists yeah. or whatever. Absolutely. And and I think in our, in our normal uh, sort of daily interactions with people, we take you know, their personality traits and things into account when we're, when we're trying to understand why they behave that way. Maybe they behaved in a way that was different from us, but maybe we realize, oh, that's because they're a shy person or they're an anxious person or they were irritable because they, they were hungry or whatever it is, right? You know, those are things that we do take into account um, in, in our dealings with other people. And again, you know, maybe some people take them into account more than others. Um, but, but yeah, if you're not if you're not allowed to um, see that we have some degree of control over our behavior, then what are you comparing? It just doesn't uh, make any sense to me to, to think in those ways. And, and I also think, you know, that Robert makes really good points. We should take those things into account. Yeah. And if the legal system is not doing it enough now, well, great. We should think about ways that it could do it better. But first of all, you know, sociologists and psychologists and legal scholars have been thinking about this stuff and working on these problems for centuries. So this is not a new, it's not a, some, it's not a revelation from neuroscience that uh, these kinds of causal factors are at play, right? You don't need to know something about your amygdala to know that growing up in poverty limits your degrees of freedom. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, but, but secondly, the idea that you have to rest that argument on this metaphysical claim that there's no free will whatsoever, to me, that's just mistaken. And in yeah. fact, I, I think it actually undercuts the argument as we as we've just been saying. If you don't allow that there's some free will, then what are you even arguing about? Right. Uh, uh, maybe this will be a good place to end because I feel like um there's a uh, I feel like you could talk to Robert for an hour and yeah. you would not convince him certainly, right? I, you I could have, I have done. We had a <laughs> we, we had a debate uh, and we and we failed to convince each other. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure of that. Um, and there's similar debates in philosophy. Um, I, I find the the mind body problem to be one. There are people who are mm -hmm. committed dualists and there are people who are committed materialists and uh, they often feel like they're talking past each other. Um, and to me, it often seems as though we reach the limits of our human ability to intuitively understand the way that the world actually works. It makes me think of quantum physics since we were mm -hmm. talking about it earlier, right? Every single time I talk to a quantum physicist, I've talked to Carlo Ravelli twice on this show. He's a wonderful quantum physicist and, and, and big thinker. Um, I took classes on it in college, right? And every single time you talk to one of these folks, 
you're like, how could this be true? It doesn't make any sense to me. And then they say, well, here's how the math works out. And you're like, well, I can't do the math. So I guess I'll take your word for it. And yeah. they, and then they say, well, if you think about it this way and that way, like you get this really beautiful picture. And if you really work very hard to listen to one of those experts, or if you become one of those experts yourself, you can get glimpses of, okay, here's how the universe works. I think I got it. And then you go back to your regular life and you just start walking around and you forget it. And you cannot maintain that in your mind at all times yeah. because yeah. guess what? The human brain was not designed to operate at that level. We are working yeah. at such a far remove from you know what human cognition is designed for. It's incredible that we got there in the first place. And yeah. we just, guess what? Quantum physics is always going to seem kind of fucked up to you. You're never going to feel like you intuitively get it unless you make a career out of it. And maybe, maybe Carlo himself really gets it. But for the rest of us, sorry, guess what? It's going to seem like nonsense your entire life, even though it's true. And you just have to accept that. And that's how I sometimes feel about these questions. Like I, I think that, you know, for the mind body problem, how could it be that my consciousness, which seems so different from anything physical, is part of physical reality. Yeah. Uh, guess what? It fucking is. And I just have to accept it. And there's no way that it, because it is built to not understand that, uh, that fact, right? It is built. I, I am in fact, a thinking thing. Yeah. Um, and the nature of me being a thinking thing makes it feel like there's a separate reality that exists inside my skull, mm -hmm. even though guess what? My brain is my mind. Sorry. And I, I feel the same way about this question that um, when folks are like, wait, but hold on a second, is there free will, even though I am, but subject to physical laws, the same as everything else. Yeah. And you're saying yes, but there's an intuition that people what? have that cannot accept that, that says, no, 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 there must be some other sense. And you're like, you're saying, no, 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 you, you are experiencing free will. Your experience of free will is you as a choosing organism that is subject to physical laws. And then people uh, still have this emotional reaction of, no, 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 that's not good enough. That's not the way that I meant it. Yeah. And you're sort of saying, yes, it is. Sorry that you can't accept it right, to a yeah. certain extent. Um, or, or maybe I'm saying that to these no, people. No, no, that, that's, that's how I feel when I talk to you. Yeah. Does that no, make I mean, sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because you're, you know, part of the reason I, I wrote this book was to try and wrap my head around this stuff. You know I mean? Yeah. These are deep, deep problems. And what I wanted to, you know, it's it's just not satisfying to either say, you know, it all boils down to physics and the whole phenomenology of our everyday experience is just an illusion. Um, that just to be, you know, there's just not good evidence for that. But on the other hand, it's not good enough to say, well, there must be a ghost in the machine, some magical soul spirit thing that's really driving things. It feels like that. So, uh, and, you know, and science will never explain that. Uh, you know, I think those two things are not fine with me. They yeah. didn't sit with me. And I wanted to find a kind of a middle way to say, well, let's see if we can get a naturalistic framework to explain how, first of all, starting with any organism, how it can do things, how it can control things, how it can be a, a holistic entity that has some causal power that's, that is part of the physical universe, but it's not just pushed around completely by low level physical laws, right? You get higher order principles at play. And I think once you get that, right, then uh, it, while the, you know, there's only, all I've done in the book is sketch a framework that I think could be workable. Um, and there's loads and loads of, loads of details to, to fill in, but, um, well, I guess for me, it's enough to let me sleep at night, uh, to, you know, to say, okay, yeah, I can see these higher order principles could, could work like that. And then, but you know, I'm like you as well, cause they fritter away sometimes when I'm not, you know, you kind of have to keep an eye on them. 
to uh, keep yourself in that frame of mind because it's not it's not an intuitive place to be. Yeah, and I think that you could your argument could be completely correct. And by the way, you've convinced me of so, so many pieces of your argument. Oh, I got a big thumbs up. I'm so happy. You know, just that, like the, the amount of indeterminacy that is in all the different levels of these systems and the fact that yes, living beings are nothing but choosing organisms, um, uh, or choosing systems. Right. Um, and that lines up with the fact that we feel that we have free will, all these things make intuitive sense to me or are starting to make intuitive sense to me. And yet you could spread that, that message out to everybody around the world. And you would still have people coming up to you going, does free will exist? Come on. You know, like it, it, there's some way in which our intuitions will always bump up and we'll always go back to that place of, of confusion and, uh, 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 discontinuity. I feel like. Yeah. And then, you know, at some point, um, things just have to get pragmatic, right? You know, so mm-hmm. we, we can take these big metaphysical, um, cloudy, nebulous sort of ideas. At some point, we have to boil them down, right? So when we are, for example, determining whether someone was, uh, you know, responsible or not responsible for an action by reason of insanity, say, okay, that's a really pragmatic judgment that, right. has, to be, that has to be made. So, um, so it's not the case, I guess I'm saying, that, that these things just live up in the clouds as these ideas that, that can't be settled because actually in practical terms, we do settle them all the time. And you know, that yep. the case I just gave is one very sharp, um, kind of stark example, but you know, in our daily lives, as we're, as we're interacting with each other, um, you know, we're thinking about our reasons. We're thinking about other people's reasons. We're dealing with these ideas of each other as thinking, reasoning, acting agents all the time. And of course we're, we're judging people on what they did or what they didn't do or what they should have done and, and so on. So, um, that's the, that's the water that we're swimming in cognitively, you know, a lot of the time when we're doing social cognition. Um, so yeah, it gets, it gets, uh, it gets grounded pretty quickly once you have to live in the world. Right. It reminds me of when I was a freshman philosophy major and, you know, you, you read, uh, Descartes evil demon thought experiment of, of what if there was an evil demon who was creating, you know, my reality for me? What if I was in the matrix basically? Yes. Um, and that's very fascinating when you're a freshman in college. Sure. Um, and then I remember sort of getting the main objection to this line of thinking. Like, how do I know that isn't true? Well, you sure don't act like it, do you? You sure don't act as though you're living in an illusionary illusionary world created by an evil demon and that no other people exist and they're just illusions to you. You sure like, you know, get angry at them and want to kiss them and want to go get some food to eat. And like, that's the way you behave. Right. So maybe you, you do need to return to the practical reality of, of everyday life. And there is truth value in there too. Um, and you know, if you, if you only live in the thought experiment world, you do miss something, you know, like you, you have to. You, you still got to decide what to fucking eat tomorrow, whether or not exactly. you believe free will exists. Exactly, exactly right. Yep. Uh, Kevin, I could talk to you for 10,000 years. Um, this yeah. has been so fascinating, but we, oh, we should probably wrap it up. The yep. name of the book is, uh, do, do, you, do you think we solved it? Do you think we solved it in this conversation? Yeah, we're done, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Every, we can all go home. Everyone's done. That's the last this is the last book that will ever have to be written on the subject, for sure. <laughs> well, right. if people are uh, as fascinated by your viewpoint on this as I am, uh, the name of the book is Free Agents. You can pick up a copy at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books. Uh, where else can people pick it up and where can they uh, follow your work, Kevin? Well, it's in good bookstores everywhere. Of course, it's on uh, Amazon. You can get it from Princeton University Press website if you prefer. Um, and I am, 
well, they can follow. Uh, so I have a, a website that has my academic works and other other things, talks and um, other writings and so on. And I'm on Twitter at Wiring the Brain and very happy to talk with anybody on there. And I also have a blog, which is called the Wiring the Brain blog. Thank you so much for being here, Kevin. It was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you once again to Kevin Mitchell for coming on the show. I thought that conversation was incredibly fascinating. If you want to check out his book, please do so at factuallypod.com slash books. Every book you buy there supports not just this show, but your local bookstore as well. If you want to chat about the book with other fans of this podcast, hey, why don't you sign up on Patreon and support the show directly? Head to patreon.com slash Conover. Five bucks a month gets you every episode of the show ad-free. You can join our community Discord. We have a community book club where we read books together and discuss them. It's so much fun. I'd love to see you there. For 15 bucks a month, I will read your name in the credits on this very podcast and put it at the end of every one of my video monologues. This week, I want to thank April Nicole and Suchi Su. Thank you so much for your support of the show. I want to thank my producers, Sam Roudman and Tony Wilson, everybody here at HeadGum for making the show possible. If you want to see my tour dates as a stand-up comedian, head to adamconover.net slash tour dates and would love to see you there. Also at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media. Thank you so much for listening or watching wherever you get this show. I'll see you next time on Factually. That was a HeadGum podcast.